if the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Here comes the hot stepper, finances salt and pepper, stacking cabbage slice and cheddar, higher highs, grab a sweater, market breath, could be better, holy tech, did you see meta, California's getting wetter, fed pause until whenever, could be May or September, companies, unfettered job gains to remember, is this a bull for the ages or just a pretender, February's gonna test us, knock us off center, but we're here to take the charge, take it right into our chest, defense leads to offense, on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And dare I say, higher highs yet again. The Dow and S&P 500 closed out last week at record highs again as a red-hot January jobs market reinforced the outlook for strong corporate profits to come. U.S. employers added 353,000 jobs in January, way higher than the 170,000 that were expected. And December's gains, those were revised higher by 117,000 jobs. That means that companies hired 683,000 jobs onto their payrolls in just the past two months. If companies are worried about a recession, no one is telling the hiring managers, especially in professional and business services, healthcare, and retail. Those have been the fastest growing job sectors in America over the past six months, and those are higher paying salary jobs. That's not the kind of hiring you typically see if companies are worried about an economic downturn. Strong corporate profit reports out of some mega cap tech companies kept investors pressing the buy button. Shares of Meta popped 20% last week on better than expected earnings, the announcement of a $50 billion stock buyback and its first ever dividend. On February 2nd, the day after Meta reported its results, it added more than $196 billion to its market cap. That's the single biggest market cap gain in one day in history for any company, if you're keeping score. If Meta's offering a dividend and getting that kind of response from the stock market, it might not be long before we see companies like Amazon following suit. Speaking of Amazon, its shares jumped 8% on better-than-expected quarterly results, especially in its highly profitable web services division. That data is gold. Shares of Apple could not keep pace with the other tech giants after providing a pretty soft outlook for the rest of the year, but that didn't keep the market-rated S&P 500 from rallying 1.4% for the week, despite a few shaky days. And it closed higher on Friday, the seventh all-time high for the S&P 500 so far this year. If it were to continue hitting new highs at this current pace throughout the remainder of the year, it would surpass the record from 1995 when 77 new all-time highs were made. They come in bunches, my friends. The Dow also added 1.4% for the week, and the Nasdaq climbed 1.1%, all three indexes higher for the past four straight weeks. This despite a 17 basis point spike in the 10-year Treasury yield, putting it back above 4%. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is back above that 4% handle because the Fed did what we thought it was going to do. But they are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. Take it easy, coach. The Fed held rates steady, as expected. No surprises there. But Fed Chair Powell may have rained on any spring parade plans by essentially saying there won't be a rate cut at the March 14th meeting. Current context, we're going to be data dependent. We're going to be looking at this meeting by meeting. Um, based on the meeting today, I would tell you that I don't think it's likely that the committee will reach a level of confidence by the time of the March meeting. 
Now, there was only a 48% chance of a cut according to the CME's FedWatch tool, so it wasn't a total surprise. But the stock market may have come a little too far, too fast, hoping for some monetary policy loosening to bring in the spring, and expectations had to shift quickly. The odds of a rate cut in March dropped to 20% after Powell's press conference and stand around 60% for a quarter-point cut at the May 1st meeting. By the end of 2025, though, Fed fund traders think the Fed funds rate will be as low as 3.15%. It's what brings the Fed to drop rates that low that we need to be thinking about. Number two, the S&P 500 is coming off a really strong past three months, up 14% from the beginning of November until the end of January. January alone had gains of over 5%, which bodes well for those of us who believe in the January barometer. A strong January usually leads to a strong year, according to our pals at the Stock Traders Almanac. But February, this short little volatile month, does not always come up roses for investors. In fact, it rarely does. Since 1928, the month of February has delivered declines of an average of 0.1%, making it the second weakest month of the year for the stock market behind September. Now, 0.1% is not devastating by any means, but it's worth noting given the relative recent strength of the market, and there are a few other signs that point to potentially more weakness this month. Even though the Dow and S&P 500 are at record highs, we know the rally to these new tops has been thin. Only 26% of the stocks in the S&P 500 are outperforming the index. That's actually one of the narrowest markets in history. Big stocks are leading the way, and you know who they are. Narrow stock markets typically don't end well, and those of us who were heavily invested in internet stocks in the late 1990s still have the scars to prove it. If you're old enough to have been in the market in the early 70s, the echoes of the crash of the Nifty 50 still ring in your ears. I'm not saying this will end poorly, but the best thing that long-term investors can hope for right now is for market breadth to widen, for the equal-weighted S&P 500 to rally to all-time highs, it's 5% away from that now, and for corporate profits to continue to surprise to the upside. Hopes of a rate cut in March are gone and inflation is subsiding. It's all about fundamentals now, and companies need to put up or risk a sell-off. The next two weeks of earnings results and outlooks for the rest of the year are key. Remember, stocks move first and indexes follow, so beware of big drops in big stocks. And number three, how about you? How are you feeling about all this? Well, we just released the most recent results from our sentiment survey, and you are as bullish as you've been in a year. 22% of you are investing more than you have in a year. That's up from a low of 14% in November. 33% are making safer investments. That's down from 50% in November. 34% of you expect gains of 5% or more in the next six months. And less than 20% expect market declines. What are you doing with your money? ETFs are top on your list. 33% chose ETFs as their single most important investment right now. Individual stocks follow that at 29%, then money market funds and CDs. What would you do with an extra 10 grand? That's the important question. You'd buy more stocks. Individual stocks lead that category with 21% of you voting that way. Stock ETFs are next and then stock index funds. You're leaning in, maybe not all the way in, but you're leaning in. Where do you see the bubbles? In AI stocks. 52% of you think AI stocks are in a bubble. 50% think mega cap tech is. That's some AI stocks too. Cryptocurrency is next at 48% and then housing at 27%. What are you most worried about? The election, the 2024 presidential election. Not who's going to win, but what's going to lead up to it. That's what you're worried about. War in the Middle East is next at 55%, then U.S. relations with China, and all the way down at 37%, inflation. The inflation story for you is also over. The big takeaway, individual investors and Investopedia's readers, who are already known to be some of the smartest people on the planet, you're more confident. You're just not overwhelmingly confident. And that's the way we need to be. Not too high, not too low but always looking long-term and trusting the process. 
Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's another big week for corporate earnings. With 46% of companies reported so far, S&P 500 fourth quarter gap earnings per share are 16% higher than they were a year ago. That's the fourth straight quarter of positive year-over-year growth and the highest growth rate since the fourth quarter of 2021, by the way, and that's keeping the fire burning for the bulls. Among the widely held companies due to report this week are McDonald's, Caterpillar, Alibaba, Philip Morris, PepsiCo, and Disney. We're going to be listening very closely to Disney's results, particularly around subscriber growth for Disney+, and we also want to hear any new guidance on CEO Bob Iger's restructuring efforts. Are we going to hear anything about the sale of broadcast or cable assets like ABC or ESPN? Fed officials will be on the speaking circuit this week, defending their decision to hold rates right where they are for the foreseeable future, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will testify before the Senate Banking Committee to deliver the department's annual report on U.S. financial stability. She can point to the labor market as a pretty good example of just how stable it appears to be. The U.S. unemployment rate has been below 4% for 24 straight months. That's the longest streak since the 1960s. The housing market is still in a deep freeze. It's been that way for over a year and a half when the Federal Reserve began its rate hiking campaign to cool down interest rates. Everything is in low gear. New home sales, existing home sales, refinancing, second home purchases, commercial real estate, you name it, frozen in place except for some pockets of the country and the ultra high end. High end mortgage rates don't phase all cash buyers, of course. But what about everybody else? You first-time would-be homebuyers out there, you upgraders with a couple of kids who need more room to run around, you empty nesters who want to downsize and get more flexibility, or how about you real estate investors, brokers, or agents out there? You need activity and transactions to keep your business growing. It's tricky for everyone in the real estate game, and there are a lot of people playing it. That's why we're bringing on a friend of ours who knows how the game really works for buyers, for sellers, for brokers, for landlords, and investors. It's MG, the mortgage guy, Mr. Matt Garland. He's a mortgage banker, broker, educator, investor, author, part of the Earn Your Leisure fam, and founder of his own real estate community. Welcome back to The Express, my friend. So good to see you. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate you having me, man. And I'm, I'm excited about today's conversation. Yeah, I bet you've been on my mind lately because I've been watching your stuff on Instagram, thinking about the mortgage market, thinking about the housing market, because I get so many questions about it. I get a lot of investing questions, but it's housing that really is so passionate for people because that's where you live or that's where you think you'll build your wealth for a lot of folks. So I want your state of the US housing market today, Matt Garland. What do you see? Man, I see some great things happening in, in the next couple of months with the, the housing market. You know, as, as we all know, like you said in the intro, the Fed started raising rates and to try to put a freeze on things. And they did to a certain extent, right? The market definitely corrected itself. Home prices wasn't appreciating 20 to 30% all over across America. You know, 2020, 2021, those were kind of unicorn years. So I think we got some normalcy over the last 18 to 24 months, which was needed, right? Because real estate appreciating at that high level. It's just not normal and it's not sustainable. And what people don't realize that real estate over the past 65 years generally appreciates three to 4%. And last year in 2023, we was around those numbers nationwide, which I think is still a home run for people who own homes, right? There's still appreciation. So what I see happening right now in 2024, we're going to have probably a slight increase in appreciation because I firmly believe mortgage rates will get into the 5% range for conventional mortgages at some point in 2024. And there's a lot of pent up demand from home buyers out there that are just waiting until they start seeing rates consistently in the fives before they go back out and start really 
applying for mortgages and trying to, to home shop. So I think if you are a seller and if you can be patient and wait to sell, you should probably hold off a little bit because you'll probably get more money in the warmer months coming up. If you are a home buyer, I personally think right now in the winter, even with rates now, you know, they trickle down to mid sixes over the past 24 hours because of the Fed's announcement. But I think if you're a home buyer right now, right now is the time that you should be looking to purchase your home if you can afford at these higher rates right now, because there's not as much competition in the marketplace today. So I think as a home buyer, you can still win in today's market. You just have to be patient. You have to be aggressive too. At the same time, you, you, it's kind of like a oxymoron. You got to be passive aggressive, so to speak. We're talking about the Fed. We talk about how that much of an impact that has on mortgage rates, and it absolutely does. Most things that you finance are based upon the Fed rates. But what actually also moves mortgage rates? You watch them on the daily, probably on the hourly. I look at them every couple of days or so. Is it a demand thing? What moves mortgage rates, especially when you go region to region? I mean, the main thing that's really moving the mortgage rates is is that 10-year treasury, right? I'm always, see, most people are paying attention to the Fed funds rates, which is important, but it doesn't directly impact mortgage rates. As we've seen yesterday when the Feds came out and they said they, they were not lowering rates right now or raising rates right now, mortgage rates dropped almost 50 basis points. And that was tied into the 10-year. The 10-year had some great movement downward yesterday. So what I look at as a mortgage professional, I'm always looking at that 10-year treasury. I'm also looking at um, mortgage-backed securities and looking to see what coupons are being offered out there. And I know some people might not know what the hell I'm talking about. Well, they right should, they should come to Investopedia or watch your Instagram channel or watch The Big Short or remember the great financial crisis because mortgage-backed securities were right at the heart and center of a lot of that. Exactly. So I'm looking at those things as a, as a professional because it's very hard to time the market. Right. You have to really look at the charts and look at where is it going? Right. And, and, and when I'm looking at rates, that's kind of what I look for. But from a consumer perspective, what really driving interest rates, look, every bank is going to offer a different rate. And what I tell people is you have to really get educated and know where the market is as a whole, but also know which banks are going to be able to give you certain rates for certain products, because not all products are going to get the same rates, right? So what I mean by that is if you're buying a single family home and it's a primary residence, that rate will be a little bit lower if you have a higher credit score, 760, 780. But if you have a 660 credit score in that same scenario, you might have a higher rate now in that mid 7% range where that person with the 760 might be in the mid sixes. If you're buying multifamilies as your primary residence and you're using conventional mortgages, you can definitely expect to be somewhere in that mid sevens, maybe high sevens right now, because multifamilies for conventional mortgages, actually you get penalized with LLPAs, loan level pricing adjustments in the back end on the mortgage rates, right? So not all interest rates are built the same. Not all scenarios are built the same. And if you're looking to buy investment properties, I mean, you're definitely going to get penalized now, whether you're buying using conventional financing or if you're using non-traditional financing like DSCR loans or putting loans into your LLC's names, you can expect your rates to be anywhere from eight and a half to 11% right now. So it's just a matter where I feel like people just need to educate themselves because most people, when they look on the internet, they'll see like the rates are here. And then when they come to a lender, they're like, well, the rate says it was here on the line, but why are you quoting me this? And then they start shopping around and they're looking for something that's just not even available. So you have to understand the different scenarios are going to give you a different rate. 
just understanding everything that's about how the mortgage rates work is very important. Yeah. And the sticker price is not necessarily the sticker price. Same thing when you buy a car, when you get into the back room with the finance guy or gal, you're getting a whole different story and you better hold your hat there because- if Yeah, because that MSRP it, is never the price. No, the price is never the price. <laughs> the and, price is never the price. Right, right. So knowing how to buy, knowing what these things mean, knowing how to go in there as a prepared buyer or an investor is so important. I'm sure you get this all the time. We get it all the time. I want to get into real estate. I want to start being a real estate investor. Well, what do you mean? You got When people ask me that, I'm like, what do you mean? Like buying a house, flipping houses, you're talking about buying commercial property, you're talking about being a, a landlord. All these things are very different, very complex. So I want to get into back to that advice for first time home buyers. So many people sitting on the sidelines, maybe they have enough cash built up. Maybe they have you know their credit score in decent shape. They can make the down payment. But when they go into that room or they get on the phone with a mortgage broker like you, what do they absolutely have to have ready to go? First thing you need to have together is your mindset. Right. And I tell people this all the time. The first place you will need to start in real estate is your mindset because you have to be mature enough to handle real estate. Real estate is easy to acquire once you get it, but it's easy to lose too at the same time. And if you're not, if you're not mentally prepared for home ownership, it can swallow you. This is varsity. This ain't junior varsity. Right, exactly. Lace them up. You got to lace them up and you got to be ready to go. So mindset is first things first. Second thing is you got to have all your documentation together. Um, what I see people is they're all over the place. They don't know how much money they make. They don't know what their W-2s are, the bank statements. They, have, they don't have no clue of really how much money they have saved. So having all your paperwork together, everyone should be able to, to create a lender file, right? Use Dropbox, use Google Drive. Store your documents in there so that way when it's time for you to go sit down with a lender, everything is already in one drive and you have everything organized. Number three thing is you want to have together is your credit, right? You want to have your credit, not just your credit score, but you want to make sure that your utilization is low. Because remember, when you're buying a house, you're getting a mortgage, you're taking on more debt. But if, so you don't want to be house rich and cash poor. So if you have a lot of debt, car loans, uh, student loans, you have high interest credit cards that are pretty much maxed out. You probably want to hold off on going on buying a house until you can kind of get that utilization under control and get those payments to a much more affordable level or pay off all those high um, revolving credit cards. And then the fourth thing I would say is you need to have together is your, ca your capital, right? It takes money to buy real estate despite popular demand. <laughs> People want to believe that you could just go in here and buy real estate and have no money. No, ladies and gentlemen, you need to have money. You need to have your down payment. You need to have your closing cost money. And most importantly, you need to have reserves. At least three to six months of mortgage payments after you purchase the house, socked away somewhere that God forbid anything happens, you have reserves um, sitting on the sidelines to help you get through when life starts lifing. So those are the four things that I would probably recommend people that's where they need to start. Yeah, super smart. You have the credit card debt. Credit card company will take your card and start charging you interest and send you angry letters and call you on the phone. You miss your mortgage payments. You will get foreclosed on and lose it all. So absolutely be prepared for that. All right, you were talking about sellers earlier. There's some people that have been waiting for a long time, but you know, half the country has a mortgage rate uh, under uh, four or five percent. We know a lot of people own their homes outright. I think it's fifty or sixty percent of people just own their homes outright, so they have no mortgage. Yet some people want to sell and have been waiting for the fat pitch. Supply is tight, Matt. You know that prices have chilled a little bit in some areas, but when do you accept the right offer if you're a seller? I guess it's situational for every different person, but how do you know you're getting the right one at the right time? Situational for every different person, right? Um, I think you hit that right on the head. 
you know, everybody's in different situations in life and not everyone is going to have a certain need to sell. So like you said, there's many, there's almost 50% of Americans, they don't have a mortgage right now. They don't have a pressing need to sell at a certain number. They want their number. And if they feel like they can get it, they're going to hold off a little bit longer. But then you also have the other half of the country that have these low interest rates. And some might just need to sell because they need more space. They need to upgrade or they need to downsize. Right. And they may not have no choice. So as a seller, you know, you got to kind of pick your poison and you got to really know your market. Right. And that's where even as a seller, you have to do a lot of research on what's happening in your local market. And to be able to time the right time to put your house on the market, because real estate is not a national thing. It's a local thing. Every single pocket, every single city in America is different, right? And you have to really start looking, if you're a home seller, look within the one mile radius of your home, look at within the past six to eight months and see what's, what's been selling, what's been the trend, how long has the homes been on the market for? You have to start paying attention to this information and your local real estate agent will easily be able to provide this information for you. So now you can determine, okay, is it hot right now for me to sell or is it cold? And should I really hold off and wait a little while longer? But obviously, if you have a need and you need the cash and you need to get out of Dodge, then you may not have a choice but to just put it on the market and, and roll your dice. Real estate is personal. It's local. Politics is local and personal. And finance is personal. That's why we call it personal finance. Great points there. All right. Now, back to the folks that are thinking about buying right now. I think you're right. 5% is more of a magic number. 6% warms the tub a little bit. 5%, you're going to see a hop in a housing market here. Maybe that's an end of year thing. Maybe that's a 2025 thing. We'll have to wait and see on that. But for folks, and I saw you address this on your Instagram channel, folks will link to that in the show notes where you say, a lot of people say buy now and just refinance later. Refinance is not cheap. Even though you might save some money on the basis points and on your monthly payment, you got fees. Why, why not take that advice of, let me just refinance later when mortgage rates come down. What's your advice on that? Well, I think people get to refinance happy, right? And, and, and you get into this equity stripping, right? Where you just keep refinancing, 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 and then is it really beneficial at the end of the day? So I think if, if you are strapped for cash, if you are drowning in debt and you have a bunch of equity in your home and, you, and it makes both sense and sense to refinance, maybe do a debt consolidation, and bring down your overall expenses of your household, absolutely, it might make sense for you. But if you're not strapped for cash and you don't need to really refinance, and maybe you purchased in the last 18 months and you, you're in that 7%, 8% range and you start seeing rates going out to mid sixes and now you're like, wait a minute, I can save me $200 a month. I personally think you should just hold off, right? Don't refinance because if you do it right now, you're gonna spend four to 6% on closing costs. Although it's being wrapped into your mortgage, you're still paying closing costs, right? There's no way to avoid it. And then you're going to kick yourself once you start seeing rates in a 5% range. And then now what are you going to want to do again? Refinance again, pay another 4 to 6% in closing costs. And now did you really recoup any of that money? You may have paid 12, 13% in closing costs in an 18 month time frame. You're really not recouping. You're really not saving anything. It's all smoke and mirrors. So, you know, what I try to educate my audience and people who, who tap into what I do is, look, I'm a loan officer. I'm a salesperson at the end of the day, right? We get paid to close deals. Yeah, you like that, but you also want a, a client that's going to be around for a while. But, you, you, but I want a, a solid book of business for the rest of my career. And this is why I give this type of advice because I want to be honest. I don't want to think about what my commission could look like 
today, I want to think about, does this really benefit the homeowner today? And in most cases, people are refinancing and being sold a dream, and it really doesn't make any sense to refinance right now. So if anybody's listening to this, if you can hold off until we get into those fives, that's when I think you should really pounce on the opportunity to refinance and try to save yourself 2% in interest going lower in the interest um, rate. Yeah, if you're a homeowner, you're already getting the letters in the mail, the emails from your bank and every other bank wanting you to refinance, dangling. They're bombarding you. Yeah, this is what they do. And this is, this is how that industry goes. So we call that jumping over a dollar to save a dime. If you're trying to refinance now and do it again in six months, you just racked up more transaction costs than you're actually saving. Great point there. All right, for real estate investors or people who want to get involved in real estate. You got to know why, right? Why you're in this game, what you're trying to do. But the first steps, like when you started, things have changed a lot, but you've learned, you've been able to educate people along the way. But for people that say, Matt, I want to get in the real estate investing game. What are the questions you ask them to get them into the right mind frame? Man, um, first things first, if somebody tells me they want, they want to own rental properties, the first question I ask them is, do you want to be a landlord? Right? <laughs> do you know what it means to be a landlord? Right? First of all, being a landlord, you have a responsibility for other families. See, people are only looking at the transaction. Like, I want to get four doors. I want to get 10 doors. I want to get this many doors, right? Or, or units. No, those are families. So if you really want to be a landlord, you have to have compassion for people too at the same time because you got to make sure that those people who are going to live in your apartments, you're, you're giving them a good product somewhere that they can call home. Yeah, they're going to call you at 4 a.m. with a broken boiler or a clogged toilet and you're going to have to show up or have somebody show up. And you're going to have to be able to do it right now, right? Not a week from now, right now. So again, do you really want to be a landlord, right? And that's a very important question people need to ask themselves. And you'll be surprised when people really start thinking about it and we had this conversation, they're like, well, no, I really don't want to deal with that. Now, although you can hire a property manager to deal with the majority of those type of issues, you still have to manage the property manager, right? So you again, you're still the landlord and the property manager don't own the property. They're just a worker for you. So no, rule number one, ask yourself, do you want to be a landlord? And if that's the case, if you do want to be a landlord, is this your first investment property? Do you own a property right now, right? And if you don't own a, a property, this is why I encourage my home first-time homebuyers to try to find multifamilies. You know, duplex, triplex, quads. You know, you can use FHA loans, three and a half percent down. Conventional mortgages, five percent down, and be an owner-occupied land landlord and come out with less money. Now, if you already own property and you you have your own primary residence and you want to be a true investor, now you're gonna to have to put more skin in the game with twenty to thirty percent down. So the next question is, do you have the money? Because there's no seller's concessions, really. There's no down payment assistant programs. There's none of that when you're talking real estate investing. You have to have the, the, the capital and the capacity to actually own these properties. And then most importantly, do you have reserves? Because these tenants are not guaranteed to pay you a dollar, right? And especially if you're not using programs like Section 8, where you get guaranteed money, if you're doing cash tenants, they're not guaranteed to pay you anything. So do you have the capacity to cover the mortgage payment if these folks decide not to pay you for whatever reason, number one, do you have lawyer money, right? Because you're going to have to take them to court and that's going to cost you some fees too. But then also at the same time, do you have the capital when things break? Because things will break and you can't always depend on American Express, Visa, or MasterCard to swipe, 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 because some of these contractors don't want to take that, 
right? A lot of contractors still want to be paid cash for whatever reasons. They still want to be paid cash. So do you have the capital to pay for repairs when things break? Because guess what? Things will break. So these are some of the things that when I first speak to someone and we're talking real estate investing, especially if you're a first time or, or maybe you, you're going into your second property, do you have this thing? Do you have these things lined up for yourself? Because real estate investing is great if you do it the right way and you have enough capital reserves to kind of maintain and continue to go forward and scale your business. Yeah, and it's not monopoly. It's real life. People are going to call you. Houses have issues. These are assets that are affected by weather and everything else. So you got to be ready for that. And then the other side of investing in real estate is going through the equity side. If you want to be investing in real estate properties or real estate investment trusts, or be a silent partner in a private equity firm or have money in a private equity firm that owns real estate, there's all these other paths. Decide, and this is the key thing of what you said, what kind of real estate investor do you want to be? Landlord, silent partner, just on the equity side, so many things to do. All right, you know we're a site built on our investing finance and even some mortgage and real estate terms. I got to know Matt Garland's favorite mortgage or investing term. What's the one that just makes your heart sing? Huh. Cash on cash return, man. That's my favorite one from an investing standpoint. What is my net? I want to know what my money is after all my expenses. Um, so I will say my cash on cash return, my net after everything, what comes to me? What is the profit margin? Is this really a good real estate investment? That is the bottom line. That is my one of my favorite terms besides CTC, clear to close. I think that would go great on a hoodie. We love that term, Matt Garland, aka MG, the mortgage guy. Check out his social feeds, folks. We'll link to them in the show notes, his YouTube channel, his podcast, Rants and Gems. He's got a great mortgage academy. He's an author. We're going to link to all those goodies in the show notes. But if you love real estate or you want to try to build a path to wealth in real estate, you have to follow Matt. Thanks for being with us, my friend. So good to see you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And while this term won't necessarily make you smarter, it will give you some stock market trivia to make you feel smarter at your Super Bowl party on Sunday. The Super Bowl indicator is our term for the week, of course, and by all means, do not use this as investing advice. According to our favorite website, the Super Bowl indicator is the theory that a Super Bowl win for a team from the American Football Conference or the National Football League, that would be the Kansas City Chiefs this year, foretells a decline in the stock market in the upcoming year, while a win from the NFL's National Football Conference or the NFC or the San Francisco 49ers in this year's case means the stock market will rise in the coming year. Leonard Coppett, a sports writer for the New York Times, first introduced the Super Bowl indicator in 1978, and up until that point, the Super Bowl indicator had never been wrong. Through 2023, though, the indicator has been correct 41 out of 57 times, or 72% accuracy. But over the past 20 Super Bowls, from 2004 to 2023, it has only been correct six times, or 30%. So it's not reliable anymore, if it ever really was, but it is fun to talk about. What might be more reliable, however, is the Super Bowl blowout indicator. That's right. According to our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group, blowouts of 21 points or more in the Super Bowl have led to positive returns for the S&P 500 11 out of 13 times since 1967. That's an 85% win percentage. So while it may make for a terrible Super Bowl to watch, your portfolio might be happier if we get a blowout on Sunday night. 
Thanks for joining us this week. As always, and special thanks to Matt Garland, aka MG the Mortgage Guy, for coming back aboard the Express. We link to his channels in the show notes and all the other reports we cited on this episode. Find those wherever you ride the Express and on investopedia.com slash the Express Podcast. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.